If you were here with us last week, we took the time to discuss the glories of the Church of Jesus Christ, the beauties of the Church of Jesus Christ. And that message is not standing alone because it is a reintroduction into where we left off before this whole pandemic and this quarantine that brought us out of our local church for a few months, which is our series in the book of 1 Timothy. And as we return to that book, you might be wondering, is it really the time for us to get into a series on a book or in a study regarding the local church and the practicalities behind it? And I would argue, prayfully, yes. Because the world may be falling apart, but guess what? The church isn't. The church isn't falling apart. Jesus is still building his church. And even if all hell came against the church, she will prevail. And in light of this specific local church, the reason why we entered into 1 Timothy to begin with was because we know that we are in transition as a church. We are in the infant stages as a church. And we want to know exactly what it is that God wants from his church in every single aspect. And that's why we're studying this. And that's why we're going to go come back into it. And if you join with me here in 1 Timothy chapter 2 where we left off, you'll notice that we are taking off on a very interesting passage in the book of 1 Timothy. The last time that we were in this book, which was a few months ago, we discussed God's intention for men and women and their distinct roles. And we talked about how men were charged to lead the worship service in different aspects concerning prayer in Paul's mind, and then women and what their focus should be within the context of the gathering of the saints. And it's not to be fashionable. And it's not to get your attention from men and others about how you look and how you're up to date with the latest trends. It's about adorning yourself with good works and holiness and the fruit of the Holy Spirit. But Paul here is not finished discussing the distinct roles between men and women. And providentially, we are now in a specific text that is today in the evangelical world, one of the most controversial, apparently, and debated texts concerning the local church. And it deals with whether or not women have the permission to lead and to preach God's word within the local church. Now, it's a controversy today, but it hasn't been for a very long time. It is something that has been recent in the past maybe 60 years, we can say, 70 years, where people have taken up arms and to come against each other on this very issue. And it's not on a small scale. We're talking about Christian leaders who have international influence. And this is dividing many people in the body of Christ. And what's important for us to understand here is that this is a satanic strategy to bring division within the church and to weaken the church. Nothing short of that. God's word regarding church authority and gender roles has been smeared by a growing number of people as what? Being sexist, misogynistic, oppressive, unjust, and unrealistic standard for our ever-developing de culture. And so you might be thinking, is this really a big deal? And it is for many reasons. One of them, and one of the reasons why it's a big deal is because Satan tries to get the church to compromise on smaller matters before he can get to foundational matters. Oftentimes, foundations break down when they begin with small cracks being unnoticed and uncared for. And that's exactly what this is all about. And here's why this is important. Because we're seeing it develop in our world. In the 1960s and 70s, you had the world arguing and championing that there is no difference between men and women in terms of roles and responsibilities. And a few decades later, what are we dealing with? That there are no distinctions between men and women at all. 
And so we start one place and it develops into greater issues and greater confusion because hear me very carefully, church. When you forsake God's wisdom, you inherit confusion and chaos. And that's exactly what this is about. It's a war for much more than apparent equality. It is spiritual in nature. In fact, it is seeping into the church. In fact, it is seeping into Bible-believing, once Bible-believing, doctrinally-focused assemblies. In fact, there is a movement that has been here for a few years, and it's taking up much ground, and it is called evangelical feminism. And in a recent interview from Relevant Magazine, which you can find online, they've questioned those who were voices in this movement, and they asked, why is it that the church today is not embracing feminism? And I want to read you some of these quotes. It's not all of the quotes, some of these quotes. Please get an idea of what I believe is on the horizon and will test your faith and how much you value the Word of God and how much you trust in God's wisdom. Question, why do you care about feminism finding home in a church? Carolyn James quotes, Asking women to follow Jesus in measured, cautious ways so men can maintain secure in their primacy, authority, and power deludes men as to what really matters according to Jesus and places women in the untenable position of one day explaining to Jesus why we buried our gifts when the need was so great. On that day, Carolyn says, I would much rather be explaining why I did too much for his kingdom than why I did too little. Question, how do you think patriarchy is hurting the church? Rachel Evans, quote, Patriarchy is not God's dream for the world. Those who continue to perpetuate it, perpetuate an injustice, which of course harms the church internally and also its witness to the watching world. As long as women's voices are silenced in the church, the church is only operating at 50%. The Spirit was given to both men and women, and we stifle the Spirit whenever we tell a woman she cannot preach the gospel of Jesus Christ because of her gender. Question. What do you believe is holding the evangelical church back from accepting women as equals in worth and authority? Now, before I give the quote, notice how the question was posed. Did you catch it? Did you catch it? Let me say it again. What do you believe is holding the evangelical church back, listen, from accepting women as equals in worth and authority? Who said authority determined your worth? Who said that if you stand by the complementarian view, you are less valuable to God and to the believing community? Who said that? Do you see the assumption being made here? You see how even the question is being formed to assume that this stand on the word of God is an assault on woman. Quote, Rachel Evans, excuse me, Sarah Bessie says, I believe there are a few things holding back the church from embracing full equality and all of them, all of them almost track their way back to the fear and to a love of power and control at the root. I believe that until we really root out the lie of scarcity, that lie of fear, that lie of power and control and pride from our hearts, that we will continue to cling fast to a system that is actually the antithesis of God's dream for us. End quote. Do you notice the words here? If you believe the word of God on this issue, if you stand by the word of God, you apparently love power. There's pride in your heart, especially if you're a man. It's a bad witness to the world. And it's a system that goes against God's ideal dream for his kingdom. And what you just heard is going to become more common. It's going to become more ferocious. It's going to become more pressing. 
And there will be many that will fall for it. And there will be many churches that have stood on this, but will cave. But by God's grace, it will not be this church. This is important because the attack is essentially anti-love. But we know from 1 Corinthians 13 that love does what? Rejoices with the truth. That's what we're all about. And if we truly love God and if we truly love our sisters and if we truly love our brothers, then we will love this truth. And we will defend this truth. It's not a matter of how the world sees it or how the world feels about it. It's not a matter of how the world thinks we should operate. What does God's word say? And today, I am the mailman. I didn't write the letter. You deal with the author after it's delivered. So then we come to the text that Paul is about to preach. To Timothy, who was a pastor of a church, and this was clearly concern in the church for him to bring it up. And so we read, and then we'll break it down in verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. I'm sure as those words were even being read, so many things just flooded our minds, did they not? So many questions. Deception, what does it mean to teach, what does it mean to be saved through childbearing? We're going to take our time tonight because we want to know this as best as we can in one session. Verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And then he goes on to say, at the end of verse 12, she is to remain quiet. She is to remain quiet. Let's understand this. Paul is not stating that a woman has no freedom of verbalizing herself within the context of the local church. Paul is not saying even that a woman cannot exercise gifts that require speech. Because we know in different portions of the New Testament that women and men can pray, can prophesy. And so as Paul is stating this, we have to understand that there is a call here in light of the connection of verse 12 in the beginning. The quietness has to deal with a permission to not speak in an authoritative way in dealing with doctrine in the direction of the church. In fact, she is supposed to rather in submissiveness, accept that rule and receive that rule. What God is essentially saying is, listen, as you receive this in submissiveness, understand that you are honoring me and understand that as you are going to embrace this instead of resisting it and challenging it, you are in my will. Recognize the divine order that God has placed in the church and in the home and you will be walking in obedience to my will. And this is important because it's not the first time that Paul says this. If you go to 1 Corinthians 14, and I strongly encourage you to take your Bible and look at these verses in your own Bible with your own eyes. Because you need to see what these verses mean and where they are found in your Bible. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is giving these instructions so that women and men can trust in his wisdom for what he has in store for both women and men. And you come to 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33 to verse 34. What is being said here? This is in the context of the gift of prophecy being exercised and different spiritual acts of worship. And Paul says here in verse 33, specifically about those, listen, about those in the church that are called to judge the revelations that are being shared by those in the church. It's an authoritative thing to say, we're going to take what you're saying and judge it and see if this is from God. What is being said? Look at verse 33 of chapter 14. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the woman should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. Notice that he appeals to the Old Testament. For a New Testament truth of the local church. The law says this. And we'll come to where it says it in the law. But notice this phrase. As in all the churches of 
the saints. Do you know what that means? This is not bound to a culture. This is not bound to a period of history. This is not bound to a moment in time where women were a certain way and they're not like that today. This is universal. This is universal. Paul says, as in all the churches of the saints, and he gives the rule that applies cross-generationally. To argue against this is to say that other parts where Paul uses that phrase doesn't apply either. So look at chapter 7 of the same book and look at verse 17. He says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called them. Now look what he says. This is my rule in all the churches. So if we don't want to take this doctrine and apply it to our day, then there are other places in the Bible where Paul uses that phrase, as in all the churches, and say that that doesn't apply either. But it does apply, because it's God's heart for the church today. Paul's not insulting women's intelligence, by the way. Paul is not saying because, as some would argue, the reason why this doesn't apply today is because back then women lacked education, they lacked adequate knowledge, and therefore to assume a teacher role would be detrimental to herself and to her hearers. That's not what he's saying. Is Paul insulting the ladies and how they can receive information and dispense information? Absolutely not. What Paul, by the Holy Spirit, is doing is making a rule of order, a divine chain of authority. To being established. And women, according to God, cannot assume the role of authoritative teacher within the church. To minister in speech, as we discovered, look at chapter 11 when you have the time. It's clear. It's there. It's available. But notice what else he does with this passage that we're in right now. There were some in Paul's day, just like today, who potentially would have resisted that concept who potentially would have argued against it, and who would potentially rebel against it. And so Paul, by the Spirit, knowing that this would be the potential, not just in his day, but in 2020, says the following. Look at verse 36 of chapter 14. He said, Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only one it has reached? Two questions to those who would feel a resistance or who reject or would challenge this. He goes, number one, um, was it from you that the word of God came? Were you the recipient of divine revelation inspired by the Holy Spirit to give the church for all time, laying the foundation of doctrine, of matters of faith and practice? Did it come to you? Are you the author of the word of God? Notice that Paul is even at the same time assuming that he is under divine inspiration you want, to prove, you want proof that Paul himself believed that he was giving the word of God for the church for all time? Here it is. Because he's claiming that about himself indirectly. Are you the one who received instruction about wisdom and about practice? And then he goes on to say, well, are you the only ones that it has reached? You know what he's trying to target? The argument that is often used in subjective revelation from God. Did God speak to you personally about this and told you that it was right, though the church has received something from God that is already established and totally clear? Did you receive something else that we didn't get? Do you know why that is so important to understand? Because many, specifically women, who would try to push for this to be a reality in their lives and the, the lives of all churches, often use this defense. Ready? Jesus told me to. God called me to preach. God called me to be a pastor. And I personally have conversations with people who believe that about themselves. And what makes it even more frustrating is that you look at an individual who's clearly gifted, clearly intelligent, sometimes charismatic and magnetic with their abilities, and even spiritual with their love for Christ. And then they bring in that to say, Jesus called me to it. And what do people do? They, they believe it because they see the apparent fruit and they say, well, clearly it's so. 
How can I argue against your subjective experience if Jesus called you to it? And who, who, look at who you are, the sacrifices you've made to, to be in the place that you are. Then, then I'll submit to that. I have to boldly say this. If Jesus told you to do something, when in his word he said something else, Jesus didn't tell you to do it. Jesus didn't tell you to do it. Because Jesus has given his word on this issue already. It's a set deal. It's done. It's for all churches for all time. And in fact, in case anybody would apparently use their reputation or their knowledge or even their gifting as a defense to why they can operate in that role, look what Paul says in verse 37. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If you're really as spiritual as you claim to be, if you really think that you are as gifted as you claim to be, then you will understand that what I'm saying is God's standard for you. That what is being said here is for you. No matter what private experience or encounter you may have had, you uphold this as the ultimate authority of your life. And if you're really as spiritual as you claim to be, this is not just for women, but for men, then how do you interpret this verse? How do you see these commands? Do you see them as the determiner? Or do you see them as a culturally bound thing that doesn't apply to you because you receive some other experience? He said, this is God's command. It trumps over your gifting. It trumps over your apparent encounter. It trumps over all things. If you're really gifted, if you're really spiritual, if you really love Jesus, you will read a verse like that and say, if this is God's will, then let his will be done. And then he goes on to say in verse 38, if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. In the King James, the New King James, it says, if anyone chooses to be ignorant, let him be ignorant. Paul would have been considered in his preaching to be a hateful person if he preached today. Do you see what he's saying here? If after you've understood that this is my will, God speaking, if after you understood that this is as clear as day and yet you still refuse and reject it, and you want to be recognized as a person of title and position, if you are a person that wants to be recognized as such, know this, you will not be recognized as such. If you want to remain in your willful ignorance, then I'm not even going to debate this with you anymore. If you don't see this as the ultimate authority, then there's no debate here. You're operating under a different sovereign power. And so if that's what you want to operate under, Paul says, go for it. But we will stand under the command of the Lord. He is not recognized. He is not or she is not legitimate. Even in their apparent ministry. Now, we think about this and we go, this is very, very bold. And it needs to be bold because look at what we're dealing with today. It needs to be clear because there's no confusion. And look at the apparent confusion that is being stirred up. But when we come back to 1 Timothy 2, notice that in verse 11, Paul calls for a submissive spirit in this area. Paul calls for a joyful surrender from the hearts of his sisters in Christ. And you have to ask the question, why would Paul, by the Spirit, call for not just women, but even men who are advocating this, to submit to this divine rule of order? And we have reason to believe because it stems from the very fabric of our nature as a result of what? The fall. The fall. This didn't just come out of the air. This didn't just come from the feminist movement. It was fueled by the feminist movement. But it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And after the fall, when God curses the serpent and then he gives the consequences to both male and female, Adam and Eve, and their descendants, look what he says of the woman in verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Now look at this. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. Other translations say your desire shall be toward your husband. 
And we think to ourselves, what does that mean? And it's the second part of the verse that clarifies it no matter what translation you have. Whether it says toward your husband or contrary to your husband, he says, but he shall rule over you. Do you feel the tension? Do you feel it? But he shall rule over you. So what is being implied here? As a result of the fall, opens up a new temptation for women. This is in general terms because some have it more than others, but it is true nonetheless. And when we understand what the word desire means, it doesn't mean that she would have a sexual attraction to man. That was something that God gave as a gift before the fall, by the way. This is speaking about a different kind of desire. And only in one other time in the entire Pentateuch, and in a total of three times, including the two in Genesis, do we see this word being used. And all you have to do is go to chapter 4 to see it. In Genesis 4-7, when Cain was tempted to kill his brother, God warns him and says the following in verse 7, If you do well, Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So now we understand what the word desire means. At least we're closer to the conclusion. And he doesn't even use the same word desire. He uses the same phraseology. The woman's desire will be contrary to your husband, but you, he will rule over you. Sin's desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. It's even paralleled the same way. What does sin want to do in your life? Sin wants to master over you. It wants to have authority over you. It wants to control you. And what he's saying to Cain is what? You must instead rule over it and have authority over sin. So what's the, the curse? What's the fall all about concerning the desire of the woman? that she herself would long for and yearn to be in the place of authority over man. That she would desire to be in that position of headship and dismiss God's divine order for his creation. And again, that's a general reality. It's not pinned on every single person. And as you become a follower of Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, just like any other temptation that is more and more canceled and subdued by God's will for your life and your desire to accomplish that will. But it's true nonetheless. That there would be a push. Sin would corrupt the willing submissiveness of women toward their husbands. And on a broader scale, sin also opened the desire for the woman to dismantle divine appointed headship that was established by God before the fall. Instead of there being a mutual a mutual honor and holy eagerness to fulfill each gender's role, loving headship and joyful submission, there would now be a struggle. A struggle. And not just for women, but men to fulfill their roles. But, but God is highlighting here that the struggle is specific with women wanting to usurp male authority. In simple terms, before the fall, the woman would desire to be the helper of man. Before the fall. But because of the fall, woman would now be desirous for leadership over man. I hope that's clear. Because we're moving on now to this question in verse 12 of 1 Timothy 2. I understand what you just said. It's clear. This was not just bound to a time of church history or to a culture. This is for today. It stems all the way back from Genesis as a result of the fall. But question, what does it mean to teach? Is it a disqualification for all types of teaching? Is it it a cancellation of any type of expression of knowledge or, or sharing of the word of God? The way to interpret the Bible is how? To interpret it with what? The Bible. The Bible. And if you want to trim the fat on what this word means, all you have to do is look at other portions of the scripture to see if there's any, any, any exhortation for women or examples who taught. 
And again, I would encourage you either jot this down or if you have good mental memory, keep it there. Because we see in Titus 2, as one example, as you know, in verse 3, that older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. They are to teach what is good. And aha, this is it. So here's my pastoral application. Hold up. Hold on. Specific type of teaching, specific type of audience. They are to teach what is good, and so train, verse 4, the young women to love their husbands and children. So older women, seasoned believers who have walked with the Lord, should be able to, in different context, have an audience of women, younger and older, but here he's speaking about a specific way of ministering, to say, this is how you are to be a woman. This is what it looks like to serve God as a lady, as a daughter of the king. And where do you get that kind of knowledge? Well, from the word of God. It's not coming out of the thin air. So you're, you're deriving, you're drawing truths from the scripture clearly to disciple and to train up other young women to do what? Fulfill their role as a woman. Not in 1 Timothy, but in 2 Timothy, what did Paul say about his own knowledge of Timothy's experience with women? In 2 Timothy 2.15, 2 Timothy 2.15, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul calls on the fact that Timothy really, really, really knew his Bible. And all you have to do is go to the previous chapter to know that he was directly discipled by who? His mother and grandmother, no mention of his father. It's believed that he wasn't even saved. A Gentile. But more importantly, it was his mother and his grandmother that took him aside and trained him in the knowledge of the sacred scriptures. But again, do you see how it's different than 1 Timothy? Where was that being done? That was being done within the home, in a private setting, as a mother, within the context of the family. Timothy was being trained up in the word of God. And it's not only there. We come to the example in Acts 18.26 where a mighty young man by the name of Apollos, he was a fiery preacher, but he knew his theology too, at least somewhat. He preached and he preached in public settings. Then there was this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, and they heard Apollos and they were impressed and they were blessed by his ministry, but they whispered to each other and said, he has it a little bit off. We need to take him aside and just talked to him. They didn't want to shame him. Priscilla and Aquila didn't stand up and say, Apollos, I think you got this verse wrong in its context. No, we are told in verse 26, he began, Apollos, to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. They took him aside and they explained the way more accurately. So it wasn't like Aquila was there and Priscilla was all quiet and then he was explaining you had a partnership of husband and wife. And I'm sure that this man Apollos learned just as much from Priscilla than he did Aquila. But again, private setting. Not from a place of authority directing the church in doctrine and leading in a way that determines the affairs of the assembly. And oftentimes the objection is, hold on, didn't Jesus appear first to who? Woman. Didn't he appear first to woman? Weren't the first ones to, to declare the gospel of the resurrection? Were they not a band of women? Absolutely. And that is just one example amongst many of how God displays his value and his estimation of his daughters, of your sisters, brothers, that he entrusted the first declaration of the resurrection to a band of ladies. To speak to a band of cowardly men. But then that is used to say, if Jesus entrusted it to women then, what is the big deal of you holding them back now? To which I would respond, I'm not holding them back. Because they evangelized you can evangelize all you want. 
You go and preach the gospel to whoever you want. You go and share your faith and your testimony to the world. And may the power of the Holy Spirit be with you as we are told in Acts that the new covenant is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel that the Spirit will be poured out on what? On all flesh. On men and women. Sons and daughters. So go in the power of the Holy Spirit. But that is not the same as holding a position of eldership within the local church. So then what does Paul mean here by saying, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man? Well, we have to understand that he's saying two things. He's saying that women are not allowed to teach and to exercise authority over man in the sense that teaching the flock and shepherding a congregation are the unique responsibilities for male elders in the church. Therefore, a woman cannot assume the role of an elder, pastor, bishop, overseer, same words, defining the same role. Nor are they to attempt to serve in the expressions that are uniquely reserved for the elder. You know why I say that? Because somebody can say, well, I want to teach, but I don't want to be an elder. I want to teach, but I don't want to be an elder. Or I want to be an elder, but I don't want to teach. But you can't have either or. Those two things, as we're going to hear next week, are connected to the role of a pastor. And therefore, it cannot be pursued by a woman, nor can she express those responsibilities that are reserved for male elders within the church. And Paul goes on to give on his, his argument for that. Verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. For, meaning, this is the reason why I'm giving you this. Remember what he said in 1 Corinthians 14? As the law also says... The law being a word that summarizes the Old Testament, as the law also says. Let me tell you what it says from the beginning. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. This is what he's not saying. Adam was created first, so he's more important than woman. He's in first place, she's in second. Not so. When Adam was created first, what took place? Not just the fact that man was created, but he was given a responsibility. He became the federal head of the human race. He was given the the task of managing, of tending the garden, of naming the animals, of having dominion over the earth. That's what was given to Adam. And Paul says, pay attention to what happened. Adam was created first, and those things were given to him as tasks. And then who came along? Eve came along. And when Eve came along, what was it told to to Adam concerning Eve? She would be a helper. She would be a helper. So Paul's telling me, recall the divine order that was established. Adam was created first, and he had this responsibility as the head. And then Eve came along, not to be an equal in the sense of authority and rule and practice, but to help him fulfill that role as a leader. So notice, he's saying, creation. Creation is declaring this rule for the church. You know why that's important? This is why it's important. Again, because those who hold to the egalitarian view that men and women have no distinct roles based on their sex, would say, in fact, this idea of distinct roles is not only God's will, in the matter of not being God's will, it's actually a result of the fall. This inequality, this divisiveness, this qualification thing, that's what sin brought into the world. So apparently I'm preaching sin to you today. That's what sin did. And through the gospel of Jesus Christ, what is often quoted, you'll hear it and you'll know, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.28. To which I respond, Paul's declaration of equality here has nothing to do with roles but everything to do with all men of all classes, of all race, of all genders, to be equal and sharing in the blessings of salvation. That's what this text is dealing with. Because to say that there is now no distinction between male and female from this verse, we have to be logically consistent. Then we have to say that there's no distinction between Jew or Greek. We have to say that there's no distinction between master and slave or boss and employee. 
So that cannot be logically right. What it is saying, though, is it's actually confronting the sense of any superiority, confronting the sense of any feeling that you are greater because of your occupation or because of your gender or because of your ethnicity. It's challenging that and saying, listen, we are all equal at the foot of the cross. We are all equal in worth and in value. If anything, it reinforces equality. It commands it. It encourages it. It charges for it. And this is important because it's a verse taken out of context to defend something that's not true at all. Then he goes on to say in verse 13, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And in verse 14, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Pay attention, please. We could look at this verse and and attempt to study the differences between man and woman in nature, perhaps making a case that women are more trusting and tender and intuitive than men are. And perhaps you can argue for that. But I believe Paul's point is much more deep. Paul's point here is, is speaking about what happened when Adam was formed first, then Eve coming and the consequences when those roles were not honored. According to Paul's commentary on that event in Genesis chapter 2, and rather chapter 3, it was not just sin entering into the world and just general temptation that came in. Listen to how profound this is. Paul is making an argument that the sin that entered into the world was actually a result of men and women, a man, a woman, dishonoring what God had called them to do as a man and as a woman. Does that make sense? Eve forsook the protection and left the covering of her husband and exposed herself to Satan's temptation. And notice what Satan even does. When Satan slithers his way into the garden, he does not go to man. He goes to the woman. Even in Satan's attempt to tempt, he does not go to the figure of headship. He goes to the woman and entertains in her mind that she is actually the one in authority. And what does Eve do? She bites. This is not private interpretation here. This is what Paul is saying. Look at the consequence, the context. Here's the consequence when somebody steps outside of that role and another one fails to do his role because it's not just Eve. Adam, as a leader, failed to intervene and to protect his wife, standing there passively. Probably still mesmerized that God made this creature called woman and just went along with whatever she was doing. And so what happens is you have, according to Paul, A woman who dismisses and a man who fails. And what is the result? Chaos. Chaos. Sin. Greater harm. Greater frustration. Greater consequence than one could imagine. And ladies, if you're offended at Paul as a man, and he wasn't European, by the way, Paul, as a man, speaking here about Eve being deceived is not an insult to your ability to discern. Because if there's anyone who is at greater fault, it's Adam. Because Adam wasn't tricked. Adam knew exactly what he was doing. Adam knew exactly what he was doing. And that's why when you read the New Testament and you talk and you read about the the fall of man, who's the one who is pinned with the failure? Adam. Because he was the one who was ultimately responsible. And he was the one who knew God's word clearly and was given the responsibility to disciple and teach his wife and to protect her, and he failed. And Eve was actually deceived. She was tricked. She believed something to be true that wasn't true, while Adam was there, and he knew that it was wrong the whole time. But this verse is quite amazing. As I said earlier, it's saying That sin entering in the world was not just caused by biting into a temptation. It was greatly connected to the violation of God's appointment of roles for men and women. 
Do you want peace in your home? Do you want peace in your marriage? Do you want a Garden of Eden to be experienced in that setting? Honor God's wisdom. Do you want your church to succeed? Do you want your church to really bear fruit? Do you want to protect the church from mixed messages? Do you want to, do you want to see the people of God flourish? Honor God's wisdom. Because this is what Paul is saying. Look at the result of a man and a woman trusting in their own wisdom. In this idea of roles. And what Satan is doing now, he's been doing since the beginning. He's whispering the same thing. He is attempting to maneuver and misplace and change. So subtly. Now, as we read this, we come to an interesting verse in 15 of 1 Timothy 2. Paul's been hammering this point, and I hope none of you feel hammered in the sense of being overwhelmed by these truths, being so direct. He brings a contrast. He brings a different perspective on this. When he comes to verse 15, it says, Yet she, being the woman, not Eve, but all women. Because he says later on, if they continue, yet she will be saved through childbearing. If they, all women, continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. One of the most debated texts in the New Testament in matters of what does it actually mean when Paul says, yet she shall be saved through childbearing. I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. That you bearing children is necessary to be saved for eternal life. I hope I don't have to explain that one. I hope that we are equipped enough to know that that is not the case. Salvation is by faith, not by you having babies. <laughs> Others would say that this means women who suffer pain in childbirth, which is all women, they will be saved, as painful as it is, they will be saved from experiencing death in that delivery process. But that can't be true either, because women, including Christian women, have died giving birth to children. So it can't be said that they're saved through childbearing, in the sense that through that, that though joyful, filled with anguish, you will be delivered, you won't die. can't be true. We're getting a little closer, at least in, in making sense of this, when some actually say that Paul's being poetic here, in the sense that a woman played a role in bringing sin into the world, but God, in his redemptive plan, through childbearing, namely through Mary, would bring salvation to the world. That's why she, he's saying here, those would argue, would say, that's why he's saying they will be saved through childbearing. The fact that he came and, and incarnated and was by the Holy Spirit within Mary's womb and through childbearing, salvation came. But that can't be it either because he's talking about woman. So it's not saying that salvation is just for the woman because all the men would be in danger. I believe what Paul is saying is way more practical and way more tied into the context and the flow of thought. We just have to honor the context. Just see his thought process here and you and I come closer to what he's actually, by the Spirit, wanting to communicate to God's people. Here's what it is. The question you have to ask is, saved from what? Saved from what? She will be saved through childbearing. Well, okay, Paul, what do you mean saved? And I would argue that based on the context, what Paul is saying is that she will be saved from what he just said earlier. The tricks and the traps of Satan. Now bear with me. He just finished saying that she was deceived and became a transgression. And so why is he bringing this up? What he's saying is that Eve... Woman, when she stepped out of her God-ordained responsibility, she exposed herself more to satanic attack. And because of that satanic attack, she fell ultimately into sin. And this is what he's saying. In order for you as a woman to more protect yourself from such dangers, it is your responsibility to remain in the lane that God has called you to be in as a woman. In order to protect your mind, in order to protect yourself from onslaughts and lies of Satan, 
that would lead to greater temptations and even sin, honor what God said about you as a woman. If not, you further expose yourself to things that will harm you more than your apparent understanding of blessing. And what is the, the woman's main domain of her influence? Where is the place where she is supposed to give her gifting and strength and energy and time? It's in the sphere of the home. Namely, as a mother. Now, Paul is speaking again in general terms because we know that Paul in other places says that there are some who will not be married or have children. So this isn't a rule for all in the sense that if you're not married, you can't be as protected from Satan or from temptation. He's speaking in general terms here. But it's important to understand that it's as though if she does not see the value of that and the responsibility in that and chases after something else, like a title or a leadership role. Listen, let's look at the broader context. Doesn't he talk about paying too much attention to your body and to your fashion? Even that, adorning yourself, Making your identity about that. When you begin to, to, to fish for other things and not focus on where God called you to focus, Satan will have a greater advancement on your mind. So stay where God's called you to stay. And honor and see it for what it is and pour your heart into it. And not only will you be protected, you will be provided with a sanctifying and satisfying experience like no other thing can give you, no matter how much clothes you have in your closet or no matter what kind of title you have in the church. Why do we have reason to believe this? Look at chapter 4 of the same book. Chapter 5, rather. Look at verse 14 of chapter 5. He's speaking about younger widows, those who have lost a husband. And Paul says if they're not going to be busy serving in the church, look what he says in verse 14. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. Look at this. Verse 15, for some have already strayed after Satan. So when we look at the context, we realize that verse 15 here in 1 Timothy 2 is the same argument that he's making throughout this book. How do we as the people of God preserve ourselves from Satan's slander and attacks? And what he's saying in verse 15, he magnifies here in chapter 5 with younger widows and he says what? If you're not going to get busy serving God and you're just going to be idle, get married again. Because if you don't get married and occupy yourself in the household where God's called you to mainly be, then what? You're going to give the adversary occasion. You're going to stray after Satan. Not devil worship and become a Satanist. But what happened in Genesis 3? You will be persuaded by different ideas of ambition and purpose that will ultimately be against God's will. So Paul's saying she'll be saved through childbearing. And if we just make, make the application larger, she'll be saved when she just obeys what God called her to be as a woman. And likewise for men. So it doesn't mean that if you become a wife or a mother, that you have some superpower where Satan can't tempt you as easily. Because look what it says. If they continue, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. It's not about being a mother. It's about being a godly mother. And having a godly influence. Now someone said it this way, and I encourage you to pay attention because it's gloriously redemptive. You can almost say Paul is making this case. That a woman in Eve could be blamed for playing a role in ushering sin into the world. A woman could be blamed by playing a role in ushering sin into the world. But in Christ, a woman now has been given a role where she can rescue a generation from sin in the world. Because as much as a man has a crucial role to play in the church and the home, there is no one who gives more time, energy, and presence than a mother does to their children. From pregnancy until their early childhood years, who is the one that is holding that child and feeding that child and putting that child to bed oftentimes and is there giving everything they have while a man goes out and does what he is called to do? A woman. A woman pouring in, praying like Timothy, discipling. 
Can you think, unlike what feminists say today, of something more honorable and glorious than that? That you have the ability to invest in another generation that when you pass on into glory, the fruit of your labor will live on. And no wonder Satan is attacking. Oh, you want to be at home and stay with your children? Oh, oh, you don't want to go out into the world and do things? And there's a whole other conversation about how that works with Christians. But let me just stay focused here. You want to do that? You're lesser. You're lesser. You are not expanding your wings enough. You are not giving the world what the world needs. No, what the world needs is godly moms. Godly moms. I thank God that I grew up with a mother that chose to make that sacrifice. And I'm sure I can speak on behalf of my siblings as well. Because we've had many conversations about it. That a mother chose to stay and to invest and to give her attention and time and energy to pour into us, as long, uh, along with my father, but her specifically, while my, my dad went to go do what dads do. And I'm more grateful to her for that than anything that she brought in concerning finances or what kind of position or title she bore. Paul says she'll be saved through childbearing. So in the same way, we spent a morning a few weeks ago admonishing men to be godly men and that there's a need for godly men. This morning it's for you, ladies, my sisters. I want you to know that everything that God has in mind for you is much better than what the world convinces you you need to find purpose and identity. And that if you really trust in His wisdom, and you don't allow the flesh or you don't allow the arguments of the progressive to tell you otherwise. You will know a saving. You will know a sanctifying. You will know a protection and you will know a purpose like you never thought. I give this example I wasn't planning to, but it's an example that touched my heart and it comes from my mother. I'm the firstborn, Peter was the secondborn, a year and something apart. When my mother was pregnant with Peter, she had friends come over, and they hosted them. And they were believers, and in that living room, they were testifying of all the things that they were doing, the traveling and the witnessing and, and all the ministries that they were involved with. And here's my mom, barefoot and pregnant. And she came into the kitchen while they were still there and you're hearing the, the muttering and the voices and the testimonies being shared. And as she's there cleaning the dishes, cleaning the dishes, she looks out the window above the sink and she begins to pray from her heart. And she says, Lord, what am I doing with my life? What am I doing with my life? Here I am stuck at home cleaning, waiting for another child, barely can move. Is this what my life has come to? And she felt so impressed by the Lord as though to glance down to see her womb and say, that's your mission. That's your mission. You take care of the next generation. And when she told me that, it marked me for life because I know, though nobody's perfect, I know she took that commission seriously. Let's pray. Father, we choose to say yes to even this this morning. And we choose to obey. Lord, we pray that there would be clarity that was offered and not confusion. We pray, Lord, that there would be a sense of honor felt in the hearts of our sisters and not a sense of shame. We pray, Lord, that we would just behold the wisdom that we discovered and we would worship you for it. And in a day where this specific truth is being challenged and overturned, it is being promoted and it is even being used to attack those who would stand for it. Keep us trusting you. Keep us believing you. Keep us in love, 
rejoicing with the truth. Lord, may not one person here feel like they cannot serve you unless they are an elder or a pastor. May that lie be obliterated. Lord, help us think of all the ways that we can serve you. And help us when we feel like we have that gifting or that ability to say that I see this as the command of the Lord. And I will say yes to it, proving true spirituality. Lord, we see it loud and clear and we embrace it with our obedience. And Father, we worship you to say this church longs to obey you in every way possible. We ask these things, Lord, in your precious and holy name, for this is your church. We are your church. We pray for our sisters, Lord. We pray that you would protect them from the lies of Satan, from the temptations of this generation, from the mixed messages that are being spewed. And may they see everything through the lens of your word. And may they embrace what you called them to have and to walk in. And may they joyfully embrace it and not just embrace it, but experience the joys of it. That is our prayer for them. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.